Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and CEO of Mind Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the Mind Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm very excited to welcome New York Times bestselling author and world-renowned clinical psychologist, Dr. Shafali, to the podcast. When I read Dr. Shafali's most recent book, The Awakened Family, How to Raise Empowered, Resilient, and Conscious Children, I was so moved by her approach to raising children. She encourages less tiger mom antics, less helicopter parenting, and more playtime, nature, and unstructured activities. It's really how Jason and I hope to raise our daughter, Ellie. By integrating Eastern philosophy and Western psychology, Dr. Shafali gives a balanced approach to not just parenting, but personal development too. Dr. Shafali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. So I'm thrilled to dive into all things parenting, children, families with you. My main question to start is, are children enjoying their childhoods like they used to? I don't know how they used to. I think we have a nostalgic, romantic ideal of how it used to be, so I can't project. But I do see this uh, enduring anxiety that is alarming in today's children. And I think it's because with our increased comfort and luxuries and instant gratifications out of, you know, brought about with technology, that our children in a way, are not facing struggles and pain like we used to, perhaps. And this inadvertently increases anxiety. So this instant desire to know if you're liked and this instant feedback and this, you know, you can order food instantly no matter where you go. In a way, it's increased our luxurious thermometer. You know, that's increased. But on the other hand, psychologically, I think, it's created a disadvantage where we now can no longer tolerate rejection, tardiness, waiting, the the spaces in between, quietude, aloneness. And even though we're more, quote-unquote, socially connected, we're just, I believe, increasingly isolated. And I think children in that capacity are not enjoying what you would prototypically associate with a childhood, playing outside, playing in nature, getting dirty, exploring, uh, being mischievous, creating, imagining. I think we've robbed them of those elements that I do think our generation had in ample, you know. So I think that's what I can clearly say. And what I see in my practice is this alarming, enduring, abiding sense of great intolerance for who it is they are and they're not allowed you see to find who it is they are because they're constantly being given false feedback which 
increases their uh, false sense of self. So they're not alone. And to find yourself, you have to spend time on your own. So you talked a little bit about technology and social media. How do you navigate that with your own daughter or with your patients? Well, you know, you in my practice and my spiritual work, I've come to understand that you can't resist forces of culture. You have to find a way to flow with them. So it's clear that technology and social media is a force of current culture. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good. I mean, that's how you and I met. So point. it's benevolent, but it can also have a shadow, just like every element of life. So how I navigate it is in terms of the light and shadow, the benevolence and potential malevolence of any element, and try to look at it holistically. But uh, with social media, it's a challenge. And with my own daughter, I, I won't uh, pretend otherwise. It's a daily struggle. But I try to embrace it from the point of view of how can we flow with this rather than how do I fight this? How do I resist this? Because if I resist it, which resist a force of culture, then I'm actually creating a greater attraction in my child. So I want to flow with the child. So what, is, what does that mean in terms of how she uses technology, like with the flow state? Well, you kind of learn to look at the light elements of it. Oh, she's connecting. Oh, she's trying to reach out. Oh, she's part of a community. And you hope that that remains steadfast. Now, were it to go into the areas where it's more shadow elements of technology, like locking yourself up in a room for hours and playing video games for hours, which could be potentially violent, and you're in this visual, virtual world for the whole time and not having concrete interpersonal connection, then I would be a bit alarmed and then it would uh, raise the question, can I create boundaries? So that's what I always help parents with. Don't just jump down their throats presuming the worst. Try to flow with the benevolent aspects and then keep an eye on the malevolence, the potential malevolence, and then create boundaries. And that's very hard for parents to do, partly because it takes discipline. And and inner discipline. And the parents are lacking inner discipline themselves. You know, in a way, parenting has become way easier. This has become the cheapest babysitter. So we love it because it allows our children to be enraptured and quiet and out of trouble. And we use it to become zombies ourselves. So then, you know, we have double standards and we're hypocritical. So it's very complex, you know, technology is so attractive and seductive and benevolent, but then it has a shadow element. And with every relationship to everything in life, to every aspect in life, you have to kind of play that out. And there's no steadfast rule. But let me tell you, were I to do it again, (laughs) I would keep this benevolent, malevolent force complexity kind of out of my child's life, at least uh, till they were, she was older, you know, so I relented, I remember when she was 12 and a half or 13. And I knew, but I didn't know how deep. And I didn't know how inextricable it can be, you know, it's designed to seduce. And to be addictive. And to be addictive. And we didn't know. We are the first generation, you know, who were ourselves exposed to this. So I kind of, quote unquote, forgive uh, this generation for our cluelessness. Right. But I do propose to the next generations to be very, very wary 
and to prolong time in nature and prolong interpersonal connectedness before giving those uh, you know gizmos to your children because they will take over they are more attractive yes so you brought up this idea of creating boundaries which is something you talk a lot about in your book can you talk to us about the concept of boundaries and discipline and how they all work together well in my second book out of control why discipline doesn't work uh, i kind of debunked this whole traditional paradigm of disciplining your children because it is a, a farce you know it's part of a traditional model of parenting the word just seems antiquated it is it is but it's still used you know a lot of discipline books do very well i don't think mine did well at all <laughs> because i didn't promise any quick fix or control and that's my whole paradigm is taking away this illusion of control over our children and we don't discipline anyone the least of us uh, least of all ourselves but children we're very quick to discipline because they can't protest too much and because they're less mighty so uh, i show parents how these quick fixes are really lazy forms of parenting because we can and just because we can doesn't mean that's the most wise thing to do and i encourage parents to look at children as sovereign beings just like we are and to really uh, play the line the dance between allowing sovereignty allowing autonomy and uh, creating conditions which uh, can naturally allow adherence so you know if you don't want your child to eat sweets that kind of means you can't eat sweets you know and don't have sweets at home so then it's no longer a battle of wills and conflict it's uh, about creating the conditions within which the child naturally falls into so the you remove the the trigger we don't have a conflict right that seems so straightforward yeah <laughs> well, well well what it takes really is the parents adherence to the same conditions if if it's a way of living then it's no longer about rules you only need to have rules if you yourself don't adhere you know i for example i don't have a rule that i need to exercise it's a way of my life so in the same way you need we can ideally create a conditional a condition uh, in the home where things are natural where they're organic and they're not rule based and not artificially imposed so much of the way in which you talk about parenting felt like a very spiritual journey when i was reading your book can you talk a little bit about that and how the ego fits into parenting and just the decision to become a parent I think the shadow side of this parenting process is that it's very ego driven and no one wants to own that. No. <laughs> we think we're very virtuous and we're martyrs and as if our children were living in some hellish, you know, guttural place and we rescued them to uh, live with us. <laughs> and it's this delusion of superiority and virtuosity that i try to uh, debunk very brutally because unless we own the ego and unless we see that we had children at least equally for our own well-being to check off our own checkbox on the prescription list on how to be a worthy adult and that our children really are a source of gratification for us then we will use our children to feed the ego in sinister ways and never own it and what that does to the child is robs the child of their own natural unfolding their own 
even if it's the slowest unfolding on earth, that's their right. And we have been conditioned by culture to walk this very linear path to a very uh, mundane uh, goal of perfection, of achievement, of success. And we have very superficial and limited ways of defining that. But we've all bought into it. So we then use our children to fit in, to buy into this paradigm ourselves, and we then kind of take them to the slaughterhouse with us. You know, we were slaughtered, so we're just going to, you know, take you there with us because we've decided that one day in the future, the utopic promise of happiness will be bestowed. And we know that it's not happening to us, but we kind of just go, you know, maybe I wasn't worthy of happiness, but if I follow the prescription, maybe my child will find happiness. And we do it in all the wrong ways, all like externally. You know, we, and we keep looking outward and training our children to look outward. And as long as we keep doing that, believing that if you have enough money, you'll be happy. If you're in a relationship, you'll be happy. If you're a parent, you'll be happy. As long as we keep regurgitating the same paradigm, we will continue to keep having the same results of unhappiness, of malaise, of discontentment, of disconnection. So what would you recommend instead? Well, I recommend, highly recommend, that parents own this shadow of theirs, which means they must evolve. They must look at their inner terrain and deconstruct it and become as aware as possible. Now you've had the child too late, so now use every moment or every opportunity or every conflict with the child to pause and to say, to ask, to reflect. Challenge yourself. What does this say about my ego? What does this say about my lack, my scarcity, my fears? All of parenting, especially in conflict or contrast, is always predicated by fear. So if we can become aware of that in the moment, we can see how threadbare our own trust in our own divinity is. But if and when we do do the inner work, then we can see these opportunities as a call to our entryway into divinity, into worthiness, and then extricate our influence out of the children, extricate our fears away from them, take away our projections, and then they can then be more free. But what happens all around us is that we see parents always just projecting fear after fear after fear. It's all fear-based. You know, if you don't study, you won't get into college. If you don't get into college, you won't get a good job. As if the future is really more relevant than the present. But it's really only the present that's relevant. What I'm proposing is a, is a reorientation of the way we look at things. But it can only come about through the parent's own spiritual evocation and decision to, to commit to this path. So it's a really a, a spiritual journey for the parent. It's all, everything is a spiritual journey, and more so the child, because they truly deserve to be free and liberated, to unfold into their authentic selves. And mm. here we have the greatest influence and uh, can potentially provide the greatest harm. So this pressure to achieve, to be perfect, it starts very young in the microcosm where I live here in Brooklyn. There's children my daughter's age who are already starting Mandarin. Um, and their parents aren't native speakers. So there, there's definitely a lot of that pressure, I feel, as a, as a new parent. Um, 
And you talk a little bit about how you dealt with that with your daughter in your book. What tips would you have for people who are already seeping that pressure into their lives and seeing it come in? Right. So it's just that example, you know, uh, the parents are not native speakers, but they want their child to learn Mandarin. Now, they've succumbed to a story that learning Mandarin is the way of success for the future. They've fully imbibed and indoctrinated a story. Now, is it quote-unquote good that a child learns three, four languages? I'm sure it is. But where did that idea or inspiration come from within the parent? It came from culture, right? right? So they've now brought the culture into the present moment. So they've brought something from the outside into the inside. And that's where I would challenge these parents and ask, is it something organic? Why are you buying into something that is not implicit? Because when we do that, then there's no end to what all we need to do, right? It's the trend of the moment. So Mandarin could be the trend, sign language tomorrow, walking on your head. I mean, it just, it doesn't matter. It's really all quite foolish because you're believing in the trend and you're buying into it, you're succumbing, you're being actually oppressed by it because you're being ruled by it, but you don't know how to extricate from it because everyone around you is doing it. And then you buy into the mythology that if you don't buy into it, then your kid will be behind the curve. That's what happened to me when I took my kid for her first uh, structured activity, ballet at the age of eight, who knew that she was going to be put with the four-year-olds because she was so behind the curve. And I looked around me and I wondered, you know, how did all the other parents know this? Because they had drunk the Kool-Aid. They were in, in, in on point and in trend. And I wasn't. I was just foolishly thinking that childhood was this time of easiness and relaxation and exploration of wooden boxes and the utilities in my home, you know. I didn't know it was all about structure and planning and organizing your road to college. But this is an obsession, and it's an op- oppressive obsession. When you really ask parents, they will admit that they're oppressed, but they don't know how to be free. So when I give parents, say, permission that they don't need to feed their children, you know, a five-course vegan gourmet meal every every day, they go, really? I can just, like, relax and just give them a potato? And I, I, when I give them the permission to not be on point, ahead of the curve, achieving and posting everything on Facebook to show what a great parent they are, then they release. They're just looking for permission. This is not enjoyable. You know, what's happened really when you said, are our children being robbed of their childhood? What's more happening is that parents are being robbed of the enjoyment of the childhood. It's the parents who are not enjoying. And childhood has become achievement-oriented, goal-driven, and just suffused with so much pressure that no one is enjoying. Do you see any trend in that changing? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? For well, the I thought you'd you tell see? me here in Brooklyn that there were, it would be different. Everyone looks so, you know, bohemian and carefree, and I'm very alarmed. <laughs> I thought I found the little safe haven. Um, no, I don't see a change. I see it actually becoming... I don't want to project again onto the future, but I, and the reason is because the we we've been stupefied really by this zombie-like existence of seeking, 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 craving, 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 and it's a joke. It's like to me, it's just it's quite humorous, I, but also a tragedy. Right. You know, it's this uh, tragic comedy really that we're in. And what I encourage parents to do is opt out. 
You know, I opted out in many ways. I didn't, and in many ways I did. And to opt out of it all, they're all institutions that we've bought into, the institution of success, the institution of education being a particular way, the institution of beauty, wealth. It's all institutions, and we don't realize that we've bought into them. We just don't realize, and that's the tragedy of it. The humor of it is that, uh, you know, we're just like these robots, and it's quite funny to watch, but because no one is enjoying it, but yet we do it. It's this compulsion. Right. And I think when you wake up into your spiritual purpose, your your inner worthiness, your inner awakening, then things begin to shift. So really only a spiritual epiphany, which comes about with a lot of pain, can wake us up. And what advice would you have for the parents out there who are not wanting to project that activity-centric mind onto their kids and who just want to help them find what makes them happy, help them find their purpose, and live a very authentic life? Well, the beautiful thing about purpose and finding the self is that it's already happening. It's nothing we need to look for externally. We have to kind of get out of our children's way. Right, because now people are most stressed about finding their purpose. Yeah, finding... It's another achievement to do. Right. I, I've begun replacing that word because it's such a cliched, new-agey word. Which that word you, do you have instead? Yeah, just authenticity. I like that. And you don't find authenticity. You just be it, right? So there's nothing to find. The minute you begin thinking you have to find something, you're in lack. Therefore, you're in resistance to whatever is already there. So you're already in minus, in debit. And when you try to then create credit when you're in an eternal inner state of debit, it's just working at odds. You have to accept what is, and that's why spirituality and wisdom is so beautiful, because it teaches you to just relax into the isness of who you are, trusting that authenticity is the purpose. So when you're your most authentic self-expression, when you're embodying that, that is purpose. So when every moment then gets infused with authenticity, you are in purpose. Purpose is never going to be found being inspired from the outside. Could it be triggered into a deeper state? Could it find its right channel? Sure. But it's something that already is. It's just been buried under conditioning, conditionings of fear. Very interesting. Uh, Something that I want to talk a little bit about too is, is raising kind children. I think in the internet age right now, I think it's really hard to to be a junior high schooler and social media is just mean some ways. It's, it's not binary, but people can be very mean in a very public way. How do you raise a child who is kind towards his family, his friends, and his community? Well, you, again, understand that uh, kindness will show up when it's coming from a garden of abundance. So if your child isn't kind, it's not so much that they're malicious or cruel, even though that's our greatest fear, that you've raised a mo- you know, I've raised a monster. Um, but it's more asking yourself, what in my child's inner terrain is experiencing scarcity right now that m- pushes or propels them to be unkind? Reframing it not as a binary kind or unkind, but as a, are they coming from abundance or are they coming from lack? So when my daughter, who's almost 16, uh, is unkind, which is quite common, uh, I try not to get into lack. I just, in my own being, reframe it as 
she's just in a state of ignorance right now. Not ignorance out of condescension, but just out of touch. She's disconnected. She's feeling pressured by me. She's feeling stressed out by her social milieu. She's feeling in lack. So how can I help her regain a connection to her abundance? And the moment somebody's abundant from within, kindness will outpour. So instead of telling the kid, you're so bad, you weren't kind, and then you become unkind because they were unkind, you try to have compassion. And all children who have been quote-unquote mean or cruel in their verbiage toward you, when you explore deeper, they will say something like, I'm so sorry, I was just tired, or I'm so sorry, I was just stressed because of a test. Or, and I know it sounds like an excuse, but you have to allow children that leeway they're very stressed yeah. partly because of the system partly because of us especially at 16 yes so i just always try to remember myself at 16 i was a horror secondly i try to connect to all the f unspoken unseen elements in my child's life that I just don't have privy to. So just because I don't know doesn't mean they're not there. I'm always presuming that they are handling a thousand, thousand complexities that I have no awareness of. So being compassionate to that. So when the child lashes out or outbursts, to always remember they're just in pain. Pain is what causes all violence, right? So we want to have compassion for that while giving them tools. And yes, saying, you know, but that's not acceptable. or that, let, Let's find a more effective way of communicating. But let me tell you, when the inner garden is lush, the outer speech, the outer behavior will always be lush. So there's not great training for being a, a parent. You just you use what you learn growing up. You kind of wing it be amazing if there was a, a little more structured school to get these important life skills. What key lessons would you give in a parenting class? Yeah, there are no lessons. And the, the tragedy is that we all think we're competent simply because we're of a certain age or in a relationship. I mean, those are the two worst criteria <laughs> because chronological age doesn't imply emotional maturity at all. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I wish there were criterion, but but the beauty of it is that there isn't. So I accept the isness of the the lack of it, and then realize that it's through the mess and the chaos and the imperfection of it that reveals the spiritual opportunity for growth. But we don't do that. See, so spiritual awareness of the journey and the experiment and the adventure is the only way to look at this, that it's a it's a journey of uh, inner discovery. And the greatest tool that I can offer parents is the understanding that our children are before us to wake us up. And if you look at the relationship in that way, that they are here to wake me up, wake me up to what? To one, heal me from my own emotional baggage from childhood, two, to make me aware of the thrust and violence and dominance of my own shadow, which is my ego, which is lack, which is, you know, how am I in wound right now? So to become aware of that ego. And the third is to train me constantly to trust in the depths of the human potential. That every time I feel that my child is failing, I need to reframe that 
as my child is learning, as my child is on their own path, on their own destiny. And the ultimate spiritual lesson is really to see every person as an usher to spiritual growth, but more so the relationship with our children as the greatest portal, one of the greatest portals to spiritual awakening. So your children are here to teach you as much as you are here to teach them. I love that. Something we talk about at at My Mighty Green a lot is anxiety and depression, especially how there's a mental health crisis, and it seems to be affecting women and girls in particular, um, especially hard. What advice would you give to a parent who is working with a child, a daughter who has some anxiety, depression, or larger mental health issues that they're working through? Anxiety and depression, again, are manifestations of it could be biochemical, but let's put that aside. Sure. Uh, for the most part, it's an indication of a, of a disconnect to inner worthiness, inner divinity. So you cannot shush the anxiety and depression away. You can't uh, cloud it through distraction and attractions and seductions. When it's there, you have to acknowledge the isness. And you have to teach your child to not be anxious about the anxiety or sad about the depression. Teaching them that it's a wave and men may be cascading waves and that they can allow it because it's just a temporary state of feeling. The feeling is not them. So when we get anxious by our child's anxiety, we're actually telling them that we've bought into it. We've become convinced that it's a It's a static state, not a dynamic state. But when the child instead sees that we are not flummoxed or not flustered by the anxiety, that we go, yeah, anxiety is part of life. It's natural, but it doesn't define you. Anger is momentary. It doesn't define you. Happiness is transient. It's not all of you. Life is complex. So you're going to have a rise and fall and an ebb and flow of many feelings but teaching your children that it's going to come and go it is not you you who you are is something immutable it's something constant and that you is your inner sense of worth that is never going to be touched or varnished by the momentary lapses of other people's judgments of you or their validations or their their acceptance of you you exist independent of them and you actually exist independent of your feelings let the feelings come so if your child says that they're bored you're like okay you're bored good experience boredom if my child says she's anxious I, I do get anxious. It's a natural human tendency to want to erase that. But now I've learned through spiritual work that anxiety is a messenger. It's a teacher. So I say, okay, what are you learning from your anxiety? How are you talking to your anxiety? How can you understand your anxiety and embrace it? Don't be afraid of anxiety. So you're anxious. You know, so say you're on the top of a high slide and you're about to go down this tube in a water park and the kid is freaking out. You don't tell them, don't freak out. You say, yeah, I'm freaking out too. Now let's go. So it's a, it's a yes and rather than a no, don't. And are there any wellness modalities that you've found effective in that anxiety conversation? Maybe not at the top of a water park, mm-hmm. but whether it's meditation or yoga, anything that Well, for me, it's been uh, solely, singularly, and profoundly meditation. It allows me to be calm. Now, what kind of meditation do you do? Vipassana. Okay. So that is my uh, stalwart 
uh, grounding base that I can return to. And so when my child sees that I am living in the moment, unobstructed by conditioning, not phased so much by the outer reality, by whether I've put on weight or whether I have a wrinkle or whether there's no milk in the fridge. When she sees that it's all an adventure and joy, then in some way that creates a sense of security, that life is full of, you know, uh, crevices and valleys and dips, but it's okay not to change them. The goal is not to make them escalating, uh, you know, peaks of uh, enthralling and thrilling experiences. It's just an ordinary experience of life and experience it fully. Now we don't have milk. Now we're hungry. Now we're excited. They're all really on the palette of life's experiences. One should, quote unquote, should not be coveted more than the other. And I think that's the plague, especially of today's current era, that we are more attracted to the, you know, the the shiny and the glitzy and the glamorous experiences of life. And we put down the anxious moments. And I say, no, good, be anxious. Great. I mean, how can you not be anxious? But it's still not you. Just like if somebody tells you you're beautiful, that's not you either. What gets you up and excited in the morning? Me personally? Mm-hmm. I think my commitment to my service. I found what enthralls me and that's my sense of this purpose that I'm creating uh, authenticity authenticity joy uh, in my own life and hopefully teaching it to others and I'm inexhaustibly excited by it and what keeps you up at night excitement never I don't think stress I think excitement of how I can more become who I am and more teach that And what lessons would you give to your 20-year-old self? Um, That you know and to trust the knowing. And please don't buy into culture. Don't. But she was going to do that anyway because she wouldn't listen to the deep knowing. She had to try out what everyone else was doing. And now, 25 years later, I can clearly see that you know the 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 force and the the thrust of culture is strong and we kind of have to try it out to then debunk it you know a wise person could have told me my own wise self knew but i didn't listen because i was like come on if everyone is doing it checking off this, these boxes i got to check them off to see maybe there is happiness there and now i come to the re- awakening which i had at 21 but ignored that it has nothing to do with the outside. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.